This episode is presented by Univar Solutions. Do you ever question, where can I find that ingredient? Can I mix these materials together? Find the answers to your burning questions with our brand team at Univar Solutions. Think of us as your beauty concierge guiding you and helping you find success for your brand. With our broad portfolio of specialty ingredients, Univar Solutions provides those hard-to-find ingredients right at your fingertips. Allow us to partner with you and take your product line to the next level at beautyingredients.com. Hi, my name is Ali Webb, and I am the president of Canopy and the co-founder of Drybar. And to me, it's a matter of purpose. Do what you love. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. Some founders are driven by the monetization of an idea while others unlock opportunities driven by passion and creativity. The confluence of these motivations can lead to game-changing brands that disrupt the beauty landscape. The concept of disruption has become ubiquitous, and the word is wildly overused. However, when the business you founded becomes ingrained in the industry's vernacular and embedded as a reference point in funding pitch decks and creative briefs, it's safe to say the founder and the brand are true disruptors. The dry bar of has become a common reference for new service concepts in the beauty industry. Real disruption often occurs as the result of passion and a deep understanding of the consumer's needs, rather than a clear intention. Ali Webb, the co-founder of Drybar, built a business that created profound innovation, a consummate visionary that's always looking forward. She's not done yet. So, Ali, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't believe this is the first time we're actually meeting because I feel like I've known you for a very long time, having followed your entrepreneurial path. So it's exciting to actually kind of meet virtually, I guess, through a podcast. (laughs) It's nice to meet you too. And thanks for having me. Yeah. So most people in the industry know you as the founder of Drybar. So I feel like that's the natural place to start and set the foundation for our discussion. The power of indie brands and the speed at which they scale is dramatically different than when you launched your first Drybar location in 2010. White space opportunities are also tricky because there's nothing to benchmark them against. So can you share a little about those early days of Drybar and what it took for the concept to gain traction? Because I think fast forward, now we kind of take the fact that we can pop into our local Drybar location and get a blowout. And that didn't exist when you sort of launched that first location. It is such a trip. I mean, how it just became this like household name and this thing. It's still even 12 years later, feels weird that I did that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like a detachment from you and the business. Well, I think it's more like I remember being, it was years and years ago when we were just starting to open a bunch of stores in New York City. And I lived in New York City all of my 20s. And New York is like very near and dear to my heart, but I've now lived in LA for almost 20 years. And I was in New York because we were opening stores so quickly in New York. And I remember I've always been like a walker, which I'm sure is why I love New York. And I was walking a pretty far distance in New York. And in that time I had passed like three or four different dry bar locations just in New York city. And I remember having this moment and they come fleetingly of like, holy shit, that's mine. Like I did that. It's kind of like, I think we have like 
probably close to give or take as many stores as like Nordstrom, right? It's like you think of like Nordstrom is like Nordstrom is this big successful company and like so are we. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for most of that time of building dry bar, I was so head down and was appreciative of the success, which is so damn busy that I didn't take really a lot of those moments. Those moments are far and few between. It comes in and out how I feel about that and how crazy it is that we changed an industry without knowing we were doing that. We didn't set out to do that. It just kind of happened very organically. So yeah, it's all been really humbling. The industry has also changed, I think, not only in how fast indie beauty brands can scale, but also the amount of money at play. They kind of go hand in hand, right? Yeah. Today, anyway. My question was, but I think you answered it, is when you launched Drybar, was it always your vision to scale the brand to an exit? Or, you know, what was the vision? There wasn't much of a vision. <laughs> no. I mean, I'd love to tell you, I, you know, I had this very well executed, calculated plan of what was going to happen or what I wanted to happen, but there wasn't. And, you know, I was at this really interesting point in my life where I, I had done hair professionally for years. I grew up in South Florida, so I had frizzy hair growing up, which is ultimately like kind of what led me to go to beauty school and become a hairstylist. And I had spent, I don't know, six, seven, eight years in the industry. I, I was working in Boca Raton, Florida. That's where I got my cosmetology license. And then I moved to New York City and I did hair there. And I really loved blow drying hair. And I think it was because of like my own personal necessity that I loved having my hair blown out. And as a, like a teenager, I worked at hair salons as a receptionist and I loved them. I loved being in a hair salon. So I really fell in love with that. And it took me, you know, years to like get the like courage up to go to beauty school. And my parents were kind of like, really beauty school. So there was a lot of like, in my mind, like stigma around it. And I got to the point where my life where I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. The only thing I really like is hair. So I'm going to go do that. It just took me a minute to get there. So fast forward to, I met my now ex-husband when I lived in New York and we had two kids and moved to LA and I was a stay-at-home mom, which was, by the way, I thought I had kind of hit the jackpot there. You know, <laughs> the fact that I was able, I'd been working since I was like 15. So the idea of like not having to, you know, quote unquote work seemed really cool and I could just take care of my babies and all I really wanted from the time I was probably like 20 to, I guess when I hit 20, my biological clock started ticking and I was like, I think I need babies. And so when the opportunity came to be a stay-at-home mom, I really jumped at it and I loved it. We moved to LA and I got like very immersed in the mommy community in LA. And I was like as happy as could be with me and my little boy who was the greatest little baby. And he's now 17. Wow. Huh. So I loved it. And I kind of never thought I'd work again. I think I thought I'd be like a PTA, like volunteer mom. And then I realized I didn't like that and I didn't want to do that. And so like, everything started to shift when my boys were like two and four. And I was like, oh God, I have to do something for myself. I started to just feel so, I loved my kids and I loved raising my boys and I was able to stay home, but I needed my own like purpose and my own thing to like stimulate my brain. And I didn't, you know, know what that was. And how do I do that on this like new mom pace? And so I started a mobile blowout business, which was called Straight at Home, which would eventually give me the idea to start Dry Bar. So I was going down this path of like, let me just keep doing what I want to do, fulfill whatever I needed to fulfill. And I have quite fond memories of that business of Straight at Home because it did get me out of the house for a couple hours. I was only charging $40, which was just, again, not a very thought out, <laughs> plan. It was like me and my best friend were like, 
Oh yeah. Two twenties would be an easy number for people to pay. Cause I knew instinctually, I didn't want to charge a lot because there was tons of like celebrity hairstylists in LA that were, you know, charging easily 150 to $300 to come to someone's home, which is still the norm. So I felt like my idea, my hope was like more of using this as a tool to like get out of the house and see adults and not be with kids all day long and not spending another day at the park. Ugh. So I, you know, decided to start this business and I called it straight at home. And my then husband, who's a creative genius, he did all the branding for Drybar. He made me this one page website. It was like one of my early marketing lessons. And he was like, if you make a cute website, people will call you. <laughs> Great. So we did that. And I started like posting on all these mommy groups. And then, you know, I started this business. I got really busy really fast. So I thought like maybe instead of like me going to them, they should come to me and I could open a brick and mortar. And that, that was it. So the idea was to turn my clients who were, who were, I was getting really busy. And part of the other like good problem that I had was I was too busy for all the demand that I had. And I was just me. So I did come to a bit of a fork in the road. Like, do I expand this mobily and bring on other stylists. But I was like, I'm not going to really grow if I do that. And it seemed like a headache. So I was like, you know, maybe I could just open a spot where my clients would come to me and I'd charge, you know, the same amount of money. And that's when I went to my brother, who's my business partner in all of this and said, I think I want to turn my mobile business into a brick and mortar. And I think that if I keep the price point low, because it's not low anywhere else, except for like, you could find a crappy random place. You could find a cheap blowout, but the experience was bad. The blowout was very hit or miss. There really was nothing like dry bar and nobody was doing this very inexpensive price point. And my vision on it was to have it feel and look very high end, but don't have that price tag. And I think now in retrospect, looking back, like my parents were entrepreneurs and they had these little, these little old lady clothing stores in Delray Beach, Florida. And they were inexpensive clothes. And, you know, my dad like catered to the husband. And I think I, my brother and I both had this very strong customer service kind of background. And I really felt like there would be enough women in LA who would really like an inexpensive blowout, this affordable luxury in a beautiful space, well-run, you were treated well. It looked and felt high-end, but didn't have the price tag. That was it. And so I was like, let me just open this one little store. I'll be able to still pick up my kids from school. I'll run this shop. This would be like a great, exciting thing for me to do. You know, I think as we started building it, we kind of started to think about like, huh, I wonder what would happen if this thing caught on and like how our lives would change and what we would do and blah, blah, blah. But it was like, really, nobody was thinking past like, let's just get the doors open and hope people come. And that was it. There's a couple of things that strike me. One is I think the passion that people who work in the hair industry or hairstylists have it's almost palpable, like this need to do hair. My niece went through something very similar, like go to college, you know, she's like, college just isn't for me. And then she was like, screw everyone. I'm going to put myself through hair school, put herself through hair school, worked full time, set up an apprenticeship. And I find people who love hair, they're true artists and there's such a passion for it. And you clearly had that. And I think that's probably one of the intangibles that's not easily replicated. And the other is, you know, I remember when you guys started to get some scale and I am incapable of blow drying my own <laughs> hair. Like, you know, the two handed hair gets like Hard. a disaster. And so I love a good blowout. But I was thinking to myself as you guys were scaling, I'm like, I don't know, like how scalable is this like outside major cities? I was really skeptical, but you totally proved me wrong. <laughs> 
Well, you weren't the only one who was skeptical. I mean, my brother, it was this conversation my brother and I had all the time was like, we've got to prove the concept. And it like, it works in LA and New York because LA women have too much time and too much money on their hands. But I was like, I totally disagree with that. I think this works anywhere women have hair and care about how they look, which is like everywhere. There were certainly markets that we went into. I mean, think markets that would probably surprise you. We are in all sorts of markets all over the country now. There's over 150 locations, but places like Louisville, Kentucky, kill it. What was a harder lift, surprisingly, was like outside San Francisco, like Silicon Valley, like that area. Like those women took a minute to like adopt it. And I think it was because there was like, I don't know how to put it politically correct, but I just don't think they cared that much about their hair. They cared about other things, but... Once we were like, listen, you go to a lot of events, you go to a lot of fundraisers, you do a lot of things. Like if you didn't have to do your hair and somebody else did it, it would give you this extra boost of confidence. You can bring your laptop and work while you're there. And then you also, by the way, have great hair for the next like three or four days. And so we finally got them to adopt it. And then that market turned out to be really strong. It was interesting as we opened in more and more cities and we did need to prove that concept that like, hey, does this work? outside of like LA and New York. And we very quickly realized it did. And actually our second big city outside of LA was Dallas, which is kind of an easy one too. (laughs) (laughs) And Dallas is still a really strong market. Then the Chicago, Boston, DC, honestly, I couldn't even rattle them all off. We're in so many places and they all perform really well. So it was kind of very organic how it evolved. But I think very often entrepreneurs now, and I'm not sure it always works, have their exit strategy more planned out (laughs) than the brand itself and how they're going to get there. But you did it the old school way. How did you go from proving the concept to kind of funding and building the infrastructure to start scaling? Well, first of all, I think that in my opinion, you know, if you're starting a business with an exit strategy, not to say there's anything wrong with like having a game plan and, you know, a vision of what you want. But I think that if your main priorities is like to build it and sell it, it's, you know, I don't know. It's different. Yeah, it's different. And I think you will lack some of the like, this is a journey, not a sprint kind of thing, you know? And for us, like, After we had a little bit of success and realized this was like really a thing, this was a big opportunity, you know, of course, like we started thinking of like, what does this look like? When do we want to, do we want to sell this? When do we want to sell it? And like, who would we want to sell it to? And then do we still want to be involved? And there's a lot to consider, but that an exit strategy was not like a conversation we really started having until probably like four or five years ago. It was like full growth mode, full steam ahead. How do we not fuck this thing up? That was the big priority. But also, don't you think, having been part of a lot of startups, it's also kind of those mistakes. You have to make the mistakes to be able to grow. And I feel like brands today, especially ones that have raised a lot of money from VCs, they have this expectation of like this unrealistic growth and almost perfection, right? I think those early days of making mistakes actually build the solid foundation to actually scale. If you don't make the mistakes, then anyone could do it. 
For sure. There was tons of learnings, big and small, as we grew and scaled. We did always think like this was really ours to mess up because it was such a new concept and nobody had done it. And just like you were saying, a lot of people were like really skeptical about how does this even scale and work? But we started with $35, you know, over the years we raised a bit, but how do you make this concept work? And then We were expanding so fast because there was so much demand, which was awesome. But like we were on like a rocket ship. And to your point, we had to like realize that we needed to bring in people who knew how to run and grow and scale a company. And for like very mundane things, like making sure like payroll gets done. There was so much to do that we very quickly started to grow a really big team we had to, especially once we raised money and we were really going full steam ahead. It's a lot. And it was something that I'd never done. And you also had that intangible of people. Like you needed people to execute your vision. I mean, if you haven't worked in the service industry, I mean, I started early on in the spa industry. It's a challenge. There's a lot of personalities that go into sort of (laughs) delivering the $40 blowout. (laughs) Yeah. It's a labor intensive job. And I always understood, you know, stylists who didn't want to work a big, long shift. And we were always pretty amendable to that. Like, if you only want to work two or three hours, like, okay, you know, I'm not running the company anymore. And so I hope it's still like that, you know, and we had stylists who would like leave and your color business would be growing at this other salon they worked at. And then they would come pick up shifts of dry bar if they had like a slow day. And I loved that model. I think I felt as a hairstylist who knows the pains of like when you come out of beauty school and you have no, (laughs) you have to be an assistant and then you have to wait for them to feed you clients. There's no real fast track. It's just the way it is. And it's like, whatever, it's paying our dues and I was happy to do it. But I think that as a stylist, you can skip a couple steps and we were training stylists to just do blowouts. And it was for stylists who took advantage of it. It was like a great lead generator for them to like, If a client loved her blowout, she loved what you did and she trusted you because, you know, women take their blowouts very seriously. God bless them. I get it. You know, it's like if you like the way the stylist does your blowout, you might be willing to let them do your haircut or your color, you know, and so that established trust builds and then they can take it to another place. And I always felt really good about that. And I remember like... I don't know if it was like managers or just people who worked for us who had a little bit of like a chip on their shoulder about the fact that we would train people, they'd work for us for a little while and then they would leave. And it was like annoying to them because we just trained them and whatever. And I never felt that. I always felt like, that's great. This is so great. You know, we're serving a purpose for each other. You're helping us because we were so busy. I mean, we've never been able to like meet the supply. The demand has always been higher. So I'm just like happy to have great stylists. And if it means we have them for a little while and they take this thing from us and they apply it to the rest of their career, like I'm so happy about that, you know? And I think it's mainly because I lived that stylist life and I wanted to make stylists the best that they could be. Because, you know, it's like when you get a haircut, but then the blowout sucks after. It's such a bummer, you know, and I wanted stylists to not be that way. And I'm very proud of the fact that we've probably trained thousands and thousands and thousands of stylists over the years. 
How often do you find a company that offers sustainable and effective beauty products that have the power to make the planet a better place? Here at Univar Solutions, we do just that. We have access to the best suppliers with the best and most trusted products, the ability to be nimble and quick to understand your needs. Our dedicated team of brand experts acts as your beauty concierge, guiding you and answering any questions you may have. Our technical experts create new innovative formats, helping you find sustainable and exciting ingredient solutions for your formulations. Whether it's a solid hair bar that helps to promote climate positivity or a natural bio-based emulsion for your next skincare launch, we offer a complete solution to your formulating and supply chain needs. With our broad portfolio of specialty ingredients, Univar Solutions provides those hard-to-get ingredients right at your fingertips. Allow us to partner with you and take your product line to the next level at beautyingredients.com. You know, one of the things that honestly have always been really impressed by is the brand itself and the consistency in executing it at like literally every touch point. And I mean, I think that the service obviously is crucial because that's the product or was at that time. But part of unlocking the opportunity and by extension, sort of creating this culture around dry bar that you built was really kind of tied into the brand that was built. But it's very easy to conceptualize a brand, but they quickly fall apart in execution. But the execution was seamless. What did it take to achieve that level of brand building? You know, I mentioned my ex-husband, Cam. He was an advertising guy. You know, he was a creative in advertising and he worked in some of the best advertising companies in New York and LA. And I had this idea from Straight at Home that was leading into Dry Bar. You know, he was very particular about the branding and how it looked. And he was the one who came up with the original website, which was like the dark gray, you know, and then he worked very closely with Josh Heitler, who's our architect. And, you know, we had so many meetings and they were so fun in the beginning of like, you know, what my vision was for the shop, which I knew I wanted it to be a bar. I knew I didn't want mirrors right in front of people because such a great learning from my mobile business that I wasn't doing women's hair like right in front of the mirror. So it took the pressure off of me as a stylist and it took the pressure off of the client to be micromanaging the stylist. It was a win-win. So Cam and Josh worked really closely together to develop a cohesiveness between like the website, which is like obviously a big touch point, And then when you're in the shop, And I really learned so much from Cam about branding and executing in the shop. And to your point, I always felt like the branding got people in the door and then we had to keep them by giving them a really great blowout and great experience and customer service, which they were so instructively tied. Like they were like, when you walk in the door, you're kind of assaulted in the best way with the music and the smell and the sound and the movie. And then you realize you can charge your iPhone and you see only yellow flowers and the shop looks really pretty. And just like touch point after touch point after touch point and cute little signs everywhere and just little things that made you kind of smirk. You know, it was Cam's idea to do, I don't know if you remember, but when you walk in a dry bar, the floor mat says nice shoes. That was Cam's stuff. I mean, we used to call him the king of cute, you know, and he would just come up with these like 
little things that just made you kind of chuckle and like put a smile on your face. And we used to, I guess the kind of ethos, maybe, I don't know. It was like sophisticated whimsy. That's what we were going for. We wanted the brand to like be sophisticated, but fun. And we wanted it to be bright and happy and cheerful and sunny. It was a California brand. I feel like it in a lot of ways was reflective of my personality. And this, all of those things were things that I did not know or understand. And, you know, when you think back to 2010, and branding and companies, like it wasn't a big thing back then. It was like, you know, we were definitely part of that movement. And then it was like Soul Cycle was starting the same time we are, like Sprinkles Cupcakes. Like, remember those like old school kind of brands that were like just you knew them, you could spot them from a mile away because of the strong branding. And that was something that like creatives have been doing forever. But, as, you know, as somebody who didn't really know anything about that or ever pay attention to it, You know, I really started to understand how important that cohesiveness was. And our first Valentine's Day at the shop, I wanted to get pink roses. And Cam was like, no, you have to get yellow roses. What are you talking about? And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. The interesting thing was it never, to me, felt contrived. Because sometimes when you have a brand that is like sort of so controlled, it feels contrived. But the brand always felt very accessible And also had this ability to flex and welcome people in, like social media and creators. And while it was clearly very well thought out and well executed, there was also the ability for it to be what your consumers wanted to. Yeah. I mean, I think that we always approached it in this very like, it looks and feels high end, but we want it to really be a mom and pop feel at the end of the day. I was always really beating this drum of like, we bend over backwards for the customer, the way I was taught, the way I grew up, the customer's always right. We do everything we can to please them. And we are in the service business. We are giving a service. And part of that is like making people feel really special and relaxed and at ease and not like stress and not like so many of the things that come along in the service industry. And frankly, I think so many businesses mess it up, whether it's like a hair or restaurant, there's just like When someone doesn't treat you well and someone is snooty or the place isn't clean or whatever is going on and you don't feel like someone's really in charge and running it, the whole thing kind of falls apart. And I think that we worked really hard to create that to put people back on their heels and not feel so on edge or defensive when they were in dry bar and to feel like this is a very transparent business. And, you know, when we did have people who were upset and when something didn't work, you know, we were pretty quick to like apologize and be like, we're sorry, we messed up. Can we make it up to you? You know, which is really like not what you get in a lot of places. And I think that that is part of what like created that brand loyalty and just what you're talking about. Disruptor is an overused descriptor. (laughs) Both for founders and brand concepts, but wildly appropriate, I think, in your case, because the dry bar of has become part of the beauty vernacular. It's been used in creative briefs, funding pitches, or pitch decks, and innovation is often followed by imitation. How did you keep dry bar competitive? Well, that definitely happened and still happens, which is really, it makes me so happy. It's like such an honor. But, you know, in the earlier days, I wasn't as like evolved on that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like really frustrating to me how many people were knocking us off. And it was a lot. I mean, just from a business perspective, we ended up spending so much money on legal fees for like cease and desist letters and all these people we were having to go after. And that was like not budgeted for, you know, it's like, that was a really amazing learning experience. Like you're going to have to have some budget for legal if you're, you know, doing something like this. 
And I think emotionally, it made me really nervous that like, it looked from the outside that recreating your own dry bar. How hard could it be? How hard could it be? <laughs> you hired some Silas, you paint some walls. People were like putting mirrors behind the stations. Like I mentioned, like we did, but they didn't really know why they were doing it. It was an interesting thing. And I did get really nervous. I used to like <laughs> drive by them and look in the window and see if they were busy. And I was like, shit, you know, I was nervous. And not to mention, I would like talk to anybody who came in our stores about the business and how, what was right. working and what wasn't. I was just such an open book. Cause I just, I was naive. I didn't think like people were going to like rip us off, but they did. And I think what we quickly realized, you know, is we kept moving and going. And I think there's a lot of different reasons. Part of it was I do think that I was very uniquely qualified to do this. Like I mentioned, I'd been obsessed with blowouts since I was a little girl. I'd spent years in the industry. I've worked as an assistant for the owners of salons. So I knew how salons worked. I knew how they operated. I didn't realize I knew it, but I knew it. And so I think man, between me and my brother, who was like the business sense and helping me with that side of things and Cam, who was like the creative mastermind, like it's pretty hard to do what we did. And I think I started to realize that because a lot of the places that opened were like, I remember clients coming in and being like, I couldn't get into dry bar. So I went to this place down the street and it sucked. And I can't really tell you why, but it sucked. And I was like, I can tell you why. There was uh, so many things off from like the customer service to the lighting, to the actual execution of the blowout. Like there was a myriad of things. And that's when I think I started to realize like, it was very hard to duplicate us and what we were doing. And it wasn't like just because of me, it was like the whole team and my insane knowledge of this industry and knowing like being a pretty good read on people. And I mean, I used to be in shops and I'd walk the length of the shop and I'd be looking at women's expression. And as somebody who wears their emotions on the outside, I would look at women and be like, she's not happy. And if I noticed a woman wasn't happy, I'd like casually mosey up to her and then just start chatting with her, try to get a feel for like, is she like, does she like this boat? Is she not? And then if she wasn't, we'd try to like maybe switch a stylist or do whatever we needed to be done. And so it was like that level in so many different areas was what really set us apart. And the more and more copycats popped up, the more we started to see that a lot of them closed, you know, or a lot of them would add they'd become a full service salon or they'd start doing makeup. And that was usually when we knew like their blowout business wasn't working. And again, back to our kind of motto, which was like, we focus on one thing and we're the best at it. You know, we're not trying to be all these other things. We have this intense focus on just blowout. That was one of the other things that really set us apart. So when did you know that it was time to exit? It didn't go down the way I thought it would have. And that was like, thanks to good old Corona, you know, or COVID. Does anybody call it Corona? I think everybody calls it I don't it know. It has so many uh, iterations at this I know, point. Right? We were starting to really consider an exit and what to do next. And we were considering going public. We were, we were playing around a lot of things. And what we realized is that it was kind of a different buyer to buy the product and to buy the stores. And so we ended up selling to Helen of Troy in early... 2020, I believe, right before the world fell apart. Like what felt like minutes. I mean, we got very lucky. That was definitely a weird thing to sell the product division because it was really like my baby. And it was, you know, I developed that product line and grown it and nurtured it for years. And then we were selling it. And it was just like, that was it. And I think that like, to your question, how did I know? I think we just all like, mentally and emotionally, our lives had changed a lot. And you were ready. We were ready. It had been almost 10 years. And I think I was like, you know, I've like made my mark on this. I've done what I wanted to do. And I think I'm like 
ready to kind of move on to different things now. And that really was it. The company was like in a really good place. We knew that there was, we had a lot of great people working for us, a lot of people who were executing really well. And I just felt like I was like, you know, I think we all kind of started to feel like, okay, it's like time to kind of get on to the next thing. Well, speaking about the next thing, you very recently joined Canopy and taking on the role of president. And I'm so curious, what was it about the business that compelled you to lead the brand to kind of its next stage of growth? Well, it was an interesting way that it happened. Obviously, we sold the dry bar product in 2020. And now fast forward to 2022. I would say it was like towards the end of last year that I was starting to get like the itch to do something again. And we had started other brands like Squeeze and OK Humans. And I started, you know, kind of joined forces with a friend of mine, Meredith Quill, and we started Beckett and Quill. So I had like all these other like little things going, but I was still like kind of I still want to do something else. And I don't know exactly what that is. And I started thinking that I know how to develop a hair product line really well. Like maybe I should do that, you know? And so I, I started talking to different companies, like almost like development companies that could help me with a vision of a product line, which I had from execution to get it out there. And as I was going down the path, you know how when you have this like this voice in the back of your mind that's like, I don't really know. And I felt like the world has gotten so saturated. I mean, if, when we went into Sephora, we launched in Sephora 12 years ago, it was like us, Bumble and Living Proof. And that was it. And now it's like, I couldn't even rattle off all the different hair brands there. So as I'm like exploring this in my mind and talking to people about what this could look like, I was like, it's just like a very saturated spot. Like, I don't know if I want to like, I don't know. And so I got connected to this guy, Justin Sedenfeld, who is the founder and CEO of Canopy. And what I was talking to him about was he's also the CEO and founder of a company called Doris Dev. And they are a product development company. They make all sorts of different products and they're, they're really good and their branding is really good. And so I was interested in talking to them and I got on the phone with Justin and we started talking about it. And he was like, I'm not sure like we're necessarily the right fit for you with hair stuff. We haven't done a lot of that, but we do have this company called Canopy that you might find interesting. And I was like, oh, okay. I've never heard of it. And I'm like, what is it? He's like, they're humidifiers. And I was like, okay, like still like <laughs> not sure like why he's telling me this. And you know, what he quickly explained to me was that part of the reason they started this company, because one of the other co-founders, his girlfriend was like, you know, spending so much time on cleaning her humidifier every week, like would spend hours and hours and hours on this. And she had like, you know, an older, like CVS, like kind of not great. And so, you know, he was like asking the girl from like, why do you spend so much time on this? And she was like, well, because it makes my skin look and feel so much better. It's more hydrated and glowy and dewy. And I, and they were like, this could be a really interesting opportunity to bring humidifiers to the beauty space. And, you know, and so that's kind of like how they started to develop the company as like, we want to be the beauty humidifier and start to really educate women on like how great this is for your skin. And then he told me that they work closely with a dermatologist and that it's actually really great for your scalp, especially dry scalp. And it's really hydrating for your hair. And I was like, whoa. And then the numbers and how much revenue they had done in like just over a year was like mind blowing. And I never even heard of it. And nobody I knew had heard of it. I had never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> 
which was like great news. Like you're already doing this much business and nobody that I know has heard of you. Knows who you are. Yeah. So that's really great news. So they sent me a canopy. I loved it. And aesthetically, they look so much better like in your room. They have this like LED light technology built in. So it keeps the water from ever getting like gross and moldy. You have a filter that you change every six weeks, which is also part of their like subscription where like if you sign up to be a member every six weeks, they automatically send you a new filter. You pop that thing in, throw away the other one, and you can see like all the shit that's in your water in that filter. And that's it. I mean, you can clean it by just putting the water container in the dishwasher. There's no like cleaning the way we've always known humidifiers to be. And it's evaporated moisture. So it doesn't have the big droplets that puddle, you know, around a humidifier. It's like every humidifier I've ever had, we've thrown away because they just get gross and disgusting. And you're like, I just want this thing out of my house. So, you know, I became really interested and intrigued by it. And I thought, you know, I'm getting older, like I'm doing everything I can these days. You know, I wish I had gotten on that train sooner and realized like all the things that I need for my skin. And I'm, I loved the cross section between like beauty, health and skin, hair and beauty and skin and baby and health. And I was like, this is like a revolutionary product and it's such a sleeper product yet. It's like a billion dollar industry, but just nobody's doing it great. So it was also very nostalgic and reminiscent of like how I felt about, you know, blowouts. Like we didn't invent blowouts. We just created a better space and experience for them. And you know, it's the same thing with Canopy. They didn't invent humidifiers. They just improved them quite a bit and made them very approachable and something you actually want to have in your house. So, yeah, so we started talking and, you know, they really wanted to get me involved in a really meaningful way. And we went, you know, back and forth on like what it would look like. And I loved the idea of coming in as the president because I could really inform a lot of decisions and things that were happening and that are happening. Like we just launched in Sephora and I've been able to really help push that along more. And there's, you know, just between all of my beauty experience and friends, and you were also in the process of raising a little bit of money to kind of get to the next level. All of these things are things that are like in my wheelhouse. So it just seemed like I got really excited really quickly and felt like there was a sense of purpose that I got from doing this that I got really excited about. And so. Well, I'm excited to see what you're going to do with it. I have one last question. You know, the number of brand concepts launching in the beauty space and the amount of investment flowing into them, especially at the early stages, it kind of makes my head spin. <laughs> and it certainly raised the bar on competition. You're one of the increasing number of founders that have also become angel investors. What advice would you share with early stage founders? And what do you look for in a founder? Like from an investment perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think that first and foremost, like passion, you know, are you really excited about this? Do you really love this? Because if that's just not there, then like, I'm not interested at all, you know? And I have come across founders who are less than passionate, not that they don't love what they're doing, but there's just, you can feel it, you know, and I need to feel it first and foremost. And then it's similar to like my investment. I did invest in Canopy and my excitement around it. It's like, you've got to be able to like prove out on some level what you can deliver and how you're going to deliver it. Show me what this looks like. Not that I'm looking for like a business plan. I'm just looking for like, what are your plans? Like, where do you think this can go? And again, to use Canopy as an example, like I recognize very quickly that these guys have the ability to be in the beauty department of every store 
they can be in the baby department of every store. They can be in the health department of every store. Like that is a big, big runway. I'm looking for that kind of thing. Like, is this product or this service or whatever you're doing, like, is there a big opportunity here to like, really like do something big with it? You know, is it have legs and momentum? Like one of my investments is I do invest in a lot of like friends companies. And yeah. one of mine is Olive and June, which I have a feeling you probably know. Yeah. Sarah Gibson Tuttle is a very close friend of mine. And it's the same thing. Like I knew when Sarah was like, the salons were great and she is a great aesthetic and they were really well executed and operated, but you know, she pivoted partially because of COVID over to just doing product. And I knew we were just having a conversation about this this weekend at my bachelorette. I knew that she was going to kill it with product because it was a sleepy category. Of course, there's a million nail polish out there and SE and OPI are great, but they've been around forever and they're not a lot of innovation. And she had such a vision for so much innovation. And I knew that that product was going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And the runway was massive, you know, from not even just the United States, but international. So for me, that was like a no brainer to invest. And I knew her passion was there. I knew she was really smart. I knew she knew this business because she really educated herself on it. So I think those are the things that I'm looking for. A strong desire to like really understand what you're doing, a deep passion and, you know, like a scale to grow and, you know, or runway, I should say to grow. And, you know, some businesses I look at, there isn't that there and rightfully so. I mean, some businesses are meant to be smaller and, and there's always different criteria, but I would say those are like the main things that I'm looking for when I'm considering investing. Well, Allie, it has been so nice to meet you. And it's so nice to sort of hear your story from your perspective after having read about it for so long. And you really have, I mean, you're one of those people that really did kind of make a huge impact in shifting a segment of the industry kind of permanently. So that's not easy to do. And you also can't set out to do it. I find that people who set out to disrupt usually are very far from disrupting anything. I think it's like set out to do something that you love. You know, I think that's the best thing you can do. It's too hard if you don't love it. Like you won't succeed because it's not easy building one of these businesses. Well, Allie, hopefully one day we'll meet in person now that the world is reopening. Thank goodness. (laughs) But thank you for taking the time and also like just the generosity of information and, and the inspiration. Oh, thank you. For Allie, it's a matter of purpose. She used 15 years of experience as a professional hairstylist and the desire to continue pursuing the creative side of hairstyling at a new mom pace to build an iconic brand that redefined an industry. Very often, innovation is followed by imitation, which has the potential of creating perpetual distraction. Oscar Wilde said, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. True creatives have the ability to keep competitors and imitators in their periphery while perpetually creating differentiation through clearly defined purpose, continued innovation, and the anticipation of their customers' needs. So in the end, it's a matter of purpose. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. Hi, I'm Ali Webb, and for me, it's a matter of purpose. I believe everybody needs a purpose, and that is what keeps us going. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official.
If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast.